0: Off the weekend that has seen Deontay Wilder, my goodness, return to the ring with a thunderous knockout. A weekend that has seen Devin Haney retain his undisputed lightweight title. A weekend that has seen a fantastic battle won by Claressa Shields in England. She's once again undisputed as the middleweight champion. We are ready to recap all of it on the Fight Freaks Unite Recap Podcast. I am the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. He is our insider. Fight Freaks Unite is his substack. He's also our insider on BigFightWeekend.com as a content partner. He's a little fatigued. I'm a little fatigued, but you had a much better New York sports Sunday than I had Tampa Bay Buccaneer sports Sunday. So you're smiling, even though the audience can't see, right? You're smiling. I'm not smiling. How are you?
1: Okay. Good trip to New York for the fights. Big, nice win this afternoon, Sunday afternoon for the New York football giants and the New York Baseball Yankees staving <laughs> off elimination to make it to game five on Monday night in New York. So as a all things consider boxing, football, baseball, good Sunday for New York.
0: No doubt. I don't want to talk about Steelers 20, Buccaneers 18. I'm still trying to figure that out. But hey, we're here for the peeps. We're here to talk boxing and get into it a bunch. Again, no matter how you found us, social media link, Dan Substack, bigfightweekend.com. Thank you for doing so. We're typically here late Sunday or Monday morning, whichever you prefer, with a recap podcast. And this is dedication here because, again, Dan worked through the middle of the night. Again, these are first-world problems, but you were traveling all night into Sunday. I have been traveling tonight, but we're here. We're here for the peeps. We're here for our fans, and the podcast audience is growing, so that's a good thing. We're here for you. That was the quickest trip you can do for New York for those fights because
1: I went up there Saturday afternoon, got there at about 2.45, By the time I got a car and got over to uh, to the Barclays Center, it's 45 minutes or so. I got there a little before four. Door, you know, credentials at four o'clock. Got set up. First fight at 4:30. There all the way through. Show ran, you know, a little bit longer because of the preliminaries. uh, Went past nine o'clock into the beginning of the pay per view, and then it took a while. Deontay uh, did not get to the press conference in a timely fashion. I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying it took a long time. So I actually left before Deontay got to the press conference. I was there for Caleb Plant went in another in a car straight back to the train station, got there in about 20 minutes to spare, hit my uh, 2.53 a.m. train back to D.C., Boom. slept a little bit on the on the train, not the greatest sleep in the world, hit D.C. 630. Uh, By the time I got a car, got back to my house. It's about 20 after seven. And uh, I'm now wide awake. I was in my office uh, getting some stuff done. And then I went and slept on the couch until the
0: Giants game started. There you go. That's the way to be on that one. Uh, And again, I caught the fights from Pittsburgh Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, traveling there with the Buccaneers, the Steel City, Uh, which, by the way, am I correct in the nostalgia? I'm not looking at this. Jersey Joe Walcott, knockout of Ezard Charles back in the 50s, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I think I'm right on that. If I'm not right on that, Maybe, maybe Jersey Joe is from Pittsburgh. Something about Pittsburgh rattles in the recesses of my brain with Jersey Joe Walcott. Well, heavyweight Pittsburgh was game. a
1: great fight city for a yes. long time. They haven't really had any, and they had heavyweight fights.
0: title fights. They haven't had anything recently, but they had heavyweight I mean, title fights. Rocky probably the Marciano, biggest thing they right? had is uh is a
1: uh, Paul Spadafore back in the day. But but Ezra Charles, that the fight you're talking about where he knocked out uh, Ezra Charles in a heavyweight title fight, 1951, taking place in Pittsburgh at the old Forbes Field.
0: Can you give me five uh, bonus points for bringing that out of the recesses of my brain at this late hour on a little heavyweight nostalgia while we're talking heavyweights? How about that? That's Uh, Okay. All good. Deontay Wilder accommodated your travel plans with a uh, one punch KO and, and look, full disclosure. We talked about this on the bet us show as well as our preview podcast, but the bet us gambling show uh, where we make the fight picks, et cetera is on Fridays at 1 Eastern time. We talked about this. This could end early. And even if it did end early, it did not mean, as this is me saying this, it did not mean that, that Hellenius was not a legitimate opponent. It did end early. You were right there, ringside. And once again, the atom bomb right hand lands. Pick it up from there. You saw it firsthand it, up close. Yeah, it wasn't even his best right hand. That's the crazy thing about it. It was,
1: you know, he, first of all, let's back up for a second. He's now 5-0. and In five headline fights at Barclays Center, all in devastating knockout fashion, four of them in world championship fights, this in a world title elimination fight. I have been ringside for all five of those fights now, and they were all, for varying reasons, absolutely crushing knockouts. We're talking about the first fight against Luis Ortiz, this fight, obviously, that was on Saturday night, Arthur Spilka, devastating knockout, Dominic
0: Brazil devastating knockout, and uh, what's the one I'm forgetting, TJ? No, I think that's all of them. You got, you got, uh, you, he had, oh, no, no, the, Staverne, uh, Staverne, the, Staverne, the rematch Staverne.
1: with Bermain Stavern in the first round, also a devastating knockout. So, uh, there's a reason why Deontay Wilder spent some time after the fight talking about his love for Brooklyn, his love for the Barclays Center, because, uh, it's got nothing but great memories for him because he's just a, a devastating puncher. And it seems even more devastating when he walks into that building. So, you know, Robert Hellenius, who was a friend of his and a longtime sparring partner, nothing personal. Uh, the, but as far as the fight goes and talk about that big bomb right hand. One thing I noticed immediately about, about uh Deontay when he got in the ring, when the fight started, he was not the typical Deontay Wilde that we have grown accustomed to where he's somewhat flat footed, not really uh, using any kind of movement, just basically stalking ahead, looking for the right hand, uh, you know, trying to get in there with the jab to set it up. But last night was really was not about the jab setting it up. It was about his legs. He was moving. He was on his toes. He was bouncing. You'd think he was like a lightweight the way that he was bouncing around. I think a big part of that was because as opposed to the uh, Fury second and third fight where he put on a bit more weight than he normally would carry coming in in the 230s, uh, almost 240 for the, rem- for the uh, third fight with Fury, Deontay, even though he's six foot seven, legit, he's more comfortable and more effective when he's in the two teens. So for the fight against Robert Helenius, who was 250 some pounds, 255, I believe, uh, 253 and a half, you know, he's outweighed by almost 40 pounds. He was 214 pounds, Deontay. And I heard people, I saw people on Twitter making the stupidest comments in the world like, well, you know, bigger, uh, you know, Helenius is going to be the bigger puncher because he's the bigger guy. There's nothing further from the truth. It's, It's not really relevant. It's how you throw the punch. And at 214 pounds, Deontay Wilder is as devastating a puncher, especially with his right hand as has ever walked the face of the earth and fought in professional boxing, period. I don't care what anybody says. Talk about Mike Tyson. Talk about George Foreman. Talk about Ernie Shavers. Uh, you know, talk about Lennox Lewis. Talk about Vladimir Klitschko. Pick pick a heavyweight that you like who's a big puncher. And I'll put them up one shot, Deontay Wilder, any day of the week. Uh, that's the kind of devastating shot he had. So point here is he was bouncing around on his toes and not really using the jab to set that shit up. And, and Robert Hellenius was coming in and Wilder was throwing the shot. So it was almost like a double impact because Helenius was there open walking towards him and Deontay was getting the shot off and it just connected perfect. And it put him flat on his back. And it was one of those weird kind of knockouts because, and I've seen this before where the guy is knocked out, but his eyes are open and I'll never forget. It reminded me a slightly different scenario. I was ringside when Paul Williams got knocked out by Sergio Martinez in the rematch. And the way he got knocked out, he was laying with his face on the mat, but his, his, his eyes were staring towards press row. And, and I can just remember the look of he his was face.
0: looking towards you. He was looking
1: towards myself and to the other reporters that were there, and I just can never, ever forget the look in his face was just open eyes of blank. And that's what, when you saw the replays of Lenius, who was, you know, on his back looking up, but there was photographs of that situation and replays. His eyes were open, and he was—he was just gone. And it was—that's the kind of power Deontay Wilder possesses.
0: Two things. The first thing is you've often talked about this, and fighters talk about this all the time. The punch that you don't see—he didn't see the right coming. And the second thing, and this is important for what you're talking about. I know it's a brutal part of the sport, but the double impact when he smacked his head hard on the canvas—that's where you saw he's lights out. And Deontay Wilder saw that too uh, in that instance. Uh, so again, full credit. I mean, you didn't see it. wasn't very long. You didn't see very much from him. But this, this isn't about nine-inning New York Yankee baseball or four-quarter Tampa Bay Buccaneer football. This is about at whatever point you can end it, you end it. And he ended it. My Lord, he ended it. So it leads to the logical follow-up here. I, I guess it's Andy Ruiz in some form or fashion probably no, beginning of the year or not no, necessarily. No. Go ahead.
1: No, definitely not necessarily. I mean, he's certainly open to it, as he stated uh, in his post-fight comments. And that fight will be mandated by the WBC. Uh, they have their convention coming up uh, that they do every year. And that's where they set up their mandatories. And because uh, Deontay Wilder and and uh, just a month earlier, uh, Andy Ruiz and his fight against uh, Luis Ortiz, they both won those fights. They were dubbed uh, WBC semifinal eliminators uh, with the logical point that the two are going to be mandated to fight each other to secure the mandatory position in the heavyweight division. Uh, but that that. What people don't understand sometimes about those organizations, whether whatever organization it is, when they declare a mandatory or they 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 announce a scenario. So take the WBC for example; they announce the scenario where it's it's a Wilder versus Robert Hellenius and it's Andy Ruiz versus Luis Ortiz, and it's a semifinal eliminator, and the winner shall fight. That's wonderful. The organizations can say what they want; that's what they want to happen. But the boxers have their own say. So there does that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to follow the plan of that organization. That happens all the time where, where organizations set up a certain, uh, you know, box off or a four man box off or order this fight or order that fight. It doesn't happen because, uh, the fighters decide to go in another direction. They may decide to go with another organization's, uh, situation. So certainly Wilder and Ruiz is a possibility. It would be for the mandatory. They're both with PBC. It would probably be a a, a pretty marketable fight given they both have, uh, of very different fan bases so there, therefore you know you, you bring fans from both fan bases to make a bigger event uh so I can certainly see the fight happening but you know it is not out of the question that he could get offered a fight against Alexander Usyk which has sort of been a little bit of the chatter there are there uh you know if, if Usyk is gonna not fight Fury or he's gonna decide to come back and want some big money fight that's you know it goes against what Usyk was saying in his recent interviews but it's not out of the realm of possibility partly because Usyk is not beholden to anybody in terms of promotion or mm-hmm. television. He is his own entity. They can go do whatever they want, you know, him and his team.
0: Wouldn't uh, logic, which sometimes we laugh in boxing, but logically wouldn't the Fury fight in terms of magnitude, because Fury's beaten Wilder twice in terms of undisputed, etc., be the more appealing fight that Usyk just waits on. Do you really believe I'm asking you your opinion he would take the risk and it would be a risk against Wilder rather than take the risk against Tyson Fury for the reasons I laid out quick thought. I think that,
1: that was, would probably be open to either. First of all, he can make a huge amount of money for either fight. Second of all, if you're really truly handicapping the fight as the boxing people on his team, I would think that they would, they would, I mean, look, they're obviously Usig against fury is for the stakes of the undisputed. But if you're talking about who, which fight he can win, I believe as a, as a, just a choice between the two, one or the other. It's a much more winnable fight for Usyk against Wilder because Wilder, you know, it's it's, it's hard and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's an easy fight and you mm-hmm. can blast it out with one shot, you know, talk to Robert Hellenius about that. But he's not nearly as d- diverse in what he can do to Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury brings a whole different uh, bunch of stuff to the table with the movement and the quickness and the hand speed and the foot speed and all the intangibles and that sort of thing. Deontay Wilder brings bombs in his hands. Um, but the point is, if it's one or the other, from the standpoint of can you win, it's a more winnable fight against Deontay Wilder. They're, you know his team; they're they're intelligent people, the guys that that work with uh with uh with Usyk and and, and guide his career. So I do think he would be open to it. I mean, listen, the, the fight I want to see, I want to see Usyk fight Fury for the undisputed title, of course. Of and course. I want to see Deontay Wilder fight Anthony Joshua, and let the winner of that fight get the title shot against the winner of Usyk versus Fury. If it means a fourth Fury Wilder fight, so be it. That's perfect, the scenario. Perfect though. World. That's, that's I like my, that. I like that scenario. scenario.
0: It's not likely to happen, but I mean, I'm, in, especially in terms of Wilder and Joshua, I continue to say, as I've said for four years on this podcast, what's your line from Rocky two? He's all wrong for us, baby. We don't need this man in our lives. Anthony Joshua hasn't wanted any part of that right hand for four years. He still doesn't want any part of that right hand. They will have to make him. They will almost have to hand deliver him to fight Deontay Wilder. I, I don't happen. agree
1: with that. Listen, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say Are with you? But I'll do I do enough arguing with other people on Twitter, but <laughs> I respect you enough to not argue with you like that. I'll just say this. Anthony Joshua fears no man.
0: I I will just say this. He had every chance to agree and fight him and he didn't want to fight him and he didn't want to fight him. And I still don't think he wants to fight him. And, but you, we, you know,
1: so- you know, better than that, because, you know, there's a lot more that goes into making these deals and just do you want to fight the guy?
0: I don't want to debate for thirty minutes. Deontay Wilder offered him, "You take three times the guarantee, and I will fight you." And he wouldn't do it. So that says to me right there, it's not about the money. It's not about. It's not about the titles. It's not about whatever. It is. I want to go fight other guys that aren't as dangerous as you. And he tried. And you to can also it turn around
1: it around him. and say that the zone offered Deontay Wilder gazillions of dollars more than he'd ever been even remotely close to making, and he turned it down. I mean, you can listen. I'm not blaming either side because they both take their 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 lumps here. But, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's as much as give as take is the way it is. All Bottom right. line is, my scenario is give me Fury versus uh, Fury versus Lucek for the Undisputed and give me Wilder versus Joshua. You can wave
0: Joshua. that Rayfield magic wand and make that happen. Do it. Let me get oh, on, on it Monday. All right. Uh, Caleb Plant, uh, Anthony Dog Durrell. That was the co-feature fight. It was not a Picasso. How about that for okay. being kind? But then I bet it had we called it. a piece of shit. Okay, you can. You were ringside. <laughs> and then it was boom time with a left yeah. hook. Give me more. Well, listen, it, first of all, to, we'll, we'll, we'll take the
1: ending first. It was a great knockout. All credit to Caleb Plant. Landed the beautiful, you know, he went down to the body with a hook, came up to the head with the hook, and landed it flat right on the button and knocked Darrell out. Now, has had some losses in his career. He's never been done like that before. That was, I, I refer to that as an erasure that's an erasure yes that's me that's an obliteration
0: that's a good relay let me relay and i'll get a quick plug in but i want you from ringside i'm in pittsburgh i'm watching with a couple of members of the tampa bay buccaneers travel party and a couple of other people we've got it through our friends at ppv.com and when he landed that one guy yelled out and another another guy this was even more than the wild knockout another guy went oh my god he said he could, he could be seriously hurt. I said, he is seriously hurt. Yeah, the way They turned him sideways. Now give it to <clears throat> me from ringside at the Barclays center.
1: Well, up until that point, it had been a horrible fight. Let's be honest. And, and by the way, I personally, I like Anthony Durrell. He's a good guy. And I like Caleb plant also. I know he's not everybody's uh, mm-hmm. favorite. You know, he he's taken on a bit of the villain role, particularly how he handles up after the fight, which I'll get to. Um, but i like caleb Plant and i like anthony durrell and i thought it was a good fight i thought it was a worthy fight uh, it turned out to be a horseshit fight it
0: sucked it was bad let's just be honest i mean we keep, it was we keep sloppy it, real- it was sloppy it was boring at times fans booing
1: oh they were yeah. booing in multiple rounds they and not because you know uh uh they were seeing a masterpiece they were they were watching guys a lot of fainting a lot of posing a lot of hugging there was multiple times where both guys were at fault where they threw each other down on the canvas and you know, uh, Harvey Dock, the referee, who's an excellent referee, mm-hmm. you know, had to had tell them, listen, guys, knock that shit off. Uh, you know, it was just an ugly, ugly fight. Now, when there were exchanges, which were few, Caleb Plant was winning the exchanges. Caleb Plant was definitely winning the fight. You could probably have had it anywhere from like 78, 74, maybe even close to uh, maybe given uh, Durrell, uh, given Durrell one round. But however you had it, clearly uh, Caleb Plant was in the driver's seat winning the fight. And it looks like he's just going to cruise to the decision. It's going to be an ugly fight. I'd have been happy because I'd have hit my bet U.S. pick, obviously. So would have you. <laughs> um, didn't work out. I know. And then, listen, like I said, in the middle of, out of nowhere, left to the body, left upstairs, boom, good night, and it was over and out. And uh, Caleb Plant is not known for his big punching power. And he he spoke about this a bit at the press conference after the fight, talking about, you know, just to tell let people know, to set it up a little bit, he had worked with Justin Gamer his entire career as a professional, as a trainer, along with his father. For this fight, you know, he left uh, Justin and 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 hired Stephen Breadman Edwards to be his trainer. Breadman, of course, is known probably best for being the trainer of the former uh, Unified Junior Middleweight Champion, Julian Williams. And and has a great reputation as, a, as just a really good boxing guy and, and really knows his shit. I like Stephen. He's very smart. He knows all kinds of stuff, boxing, whether it's the intricacies of X's and O's or boxing history, whatever have you. Anyway, they were talking about how when they first got together and they hit the mitts together, Stephen was talking about how you know, wow, you hit a lot harder than, than you get credit for the people, that people uh, realize. And, you know, Caleb had spent a long time in his career trying to perfect defense, trying to, you know, mix up his combinations. And what Breadman wanted to see him do was let the shot go and, you know, bring it with more authority. Like, you want to really hurt the guy. Let's try to add some of that to your arsenal. And if that's the, the, the byproduct of what that training camp was, their first uh, full camp together, that he could turn over that left hand and, and put a, a good, solid, like, quality professional two-time champion Anthony Drell out and not just down, but out, uh, you know, it means that Caleb plant does in fact have a bit more power than he has been given credit for. And he talked about it. Like, you know, maybe I need to look to that a little bit more as I continue my career. Cause Caleb plant, he's only 30 years old. He still has uh, I think several more years left in a good position in the weight class, you know, Durrell, I think that's probably all she wrote. He probably will retire given he's talked about retirement in the past. He took a really brutal knockout. Uh, it's to the point of diminishing returns. And I think he's too proud of a, of a man to want to be a stepping stone for some up-and-coming guy. Uh, so he had a good career, but I think that should be the end for him probably if uh, if that's what he decides to do.
0: Okay, so you alluded to it. Caleb Plant is the winner. There's talk that maybe David Benavides, another premier boxing champions fighter, might be an opponent. Maybe you're going to poo-poo that <clears throat> while I'm throwing stuff out. If if it's not Benavides, what's next for Plant? Because Canelo's got all the belts. Canelo uh, beat Plant. So what do you think? I actually asked uh, uh Caleb that at the press conference after the fight, I said to him,
1: I'm paraphrasing my own words, was, listen, you've had the Canelo fight. He has all the titles. You're in a great position with this victory. So how do you motivate yourself and who do you look for when you know that there's the high improbability of you getting a title shot? Because it doesn't appear as though that Canelo was about to vacate or switch weight classes uh, in the near term. And his point was, look, I just got a fight. Uh, the best guys out there sit down with, the, you know, I'm going to enjoy my holidays and take the rest of the year and do my thing. Remember, he's got an infant daughter that was born in the summer in August. Uh, and I remember that because the daughter and myself share the same birthday. Uh, in any event uh, they'll reconvene in the, in the beginning of the year and try to plot out what he wants to do. And he said, he wants the biggest fights out there. He didn't mention names. He's never been a guy to really call people out. But if you're looking at the list of opponents in that weight class, obviously David Benefides is a bigger fight because they have, talked about doing that fight before they've talked shit with each other back and forth that's a good matchup
0: he was pointing at jermall charlo i believe it was jermall ringside you were ringside i think it was one one of the charlo brothers and he was pointing at him like you next he even said next at one point, the TV mic picked that up. At one point, you would you would
1: suspect that was the one Jamal, the one yeah. the one sixty Charlo, yep. who was the WBC champion that weight class. Look, he's got no business going on at one sixty right now. There's no big opponents for him that seem interesting. He's not going to fight the Lovkin. I don't think there's any moving on a fight like that. So if you're if you're Charlo and you're sitting there at one sixty, you haven't fought in a while. You, you know the opponents that are available to you are not bigger. You know big big names. You were going to fight. You know Selesky, who nobody gave a shit about. And so what do you do? There's been conversation about maybe getting a Canelo fight down the road, but you're not going to probably get that right off the bat. You probably got to go to 168 and at least have one fight and prove yourself a little bit. So I could, I could certainly see that. It wouldn't be necessarily an official eliminator, although I guess it's possible it could be. But the point is it'd be a de facto eliminator because if you put Kayla playing in the ring with, with uh, the 160 Charlo coming up and wait, certainly the winner of that fight is, is worthy of fighting for a title. Certainly a Benavides fight. Against Plant is a worthy fight, and frankly, Charlo against Benavides is a good fight, also. So those three guys who all exist within that PBC universe, who have never fought each other, and and claim to want to fight the best guys out there, well, you know, let's do it and earn yourself
0: another big time shot. So Jamal, look, Jamal especially, you got to fight somebody. You yeah. got—I mean, it's been a year. You got to fight. No, he somebody. listen. When he was fighting at one
1: fifty-four,
0: he fought good quality
1: guys. He's fought nothing at one sixty not entirely his fault but th- you know but now you we- haven't
0: fought at all which, which we keep talking about right. you haven't fought at all no that's that's real over a year but i
1: want to get back to plant for a minute yes. in terms of how that fight ended yep. with the knockout of Durrell you know i get trash talk and i and i get when you say bad things about your opponent and you know you have that emotion and you're trying to get yourself psyched up for the fight you're trying to you know help the promotion i mean it's all it's all part of the shtick i get that you know a little wwe mix in there nothing wrong with that tyson fury has been a master at it and that's all good in, uh, in the way it's gone for, you know, 100 years of boxing. But I, I got a real problem when when you are that disrespectful of the opponent when you win. Now, I'm not – and I've, I've questioned how guys can just turn off that, that, that switch immediately after a win and suddenly they're hugging it out. I get if they don't want to hug it out. I get if they don't even want to, like, you know, kiss and hug and shake hands and whatever. But to go out of your way to so utterly disrespect your opponent at a moment where he's struggling physically with his health at that moment, when when Anthony Drell on the mat mm-hmm. in a difficult situation after taking an absolutely brutal, hellacious knockout, and you're not sure what the situation is. You don't know if he's going to get up and just walk back to the dressing room and all is good, or you're going to go out on a backboard and wind up in the hospital in a coma. I mean, let's just keep it real. You don't know what's I happening. I agree with you. So to see Caleb Plant, again, I like Caleb Plant, but I don't like his actions after the fight. To so see him there imitating with the shovel, like he was digging a grave and throwing dirt on him, While the man is down in front of him, and even when the commission representative went over to him and and the referee went over to him and were like, "Hey, you know, cool it, it, knock it off," he he continued to do it. I thought it was low class. I thought it was weak sauce, and I did not
0: appreciate that at all. I agree with you. Classless stuff. Uh, He tried after the fight, and you were there at the post fight press conference when he brought this up to say he was shoveling dirt on them burying the hatchet. That's the phrase he used, and now they could be friends. And I'm sitting back hearing that comment exactly. going, no, you were taunting the guy while he's knocked out and maybe seriously hurt, which was the concern. When a guy is taking that long to even sit up, I was concerned they're going to come bring a stretcher for him to get him Listen, out of the ring. For, for Caleb
1: Plant to say that, that he was throwing dirt so they could bury the hatchet, A, is an absolute pile of steaming hot dog shit, and b. When I left Barclay Center to go back to Manhattan to go to the uh, Penn Station to get my train, I traveled over the Brooklyn Bridge in my Uber. And I'd like to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge if you believe <laughs> that's real. Right. Well now, one more, one more thing about yep. that in terms yep. of the co-feature and the, and the main event. I had this uh, thought while I was on the train and tweeted it earlier because it did dawn on me that this is kind of something special that you don't see everything in, every time in boxing. I was racking my brain and trying to think to myself, when's the last time, like at least in my tenure of writing about boxing, that you saw, whatever you thought of the fights, you know, Wilder fight ended real quick. It wasn't like it was a great fight; it was just a great knockout. And the Plant-Durrell and Durrell fight went deep into the into the fight into the ninth round, and it was a horrible fight, but it ended with an, with a tremendous, uh, you know, spectacular knockout. When's the last time that we saw uh, two fight two two fights where they both produced knockout of the year candidates on the same card? Because Wilder knocking out Robert Helenius and Caleb Plant knocking out Anthony Durrell are both legit knockout of the year contenders. And even if neither one wins, let's say, they're going to be on those lists when all the outlets make their list and the pundits talk about it when the year comes to a close in December. They were very impressive knockouts.
0: I can't recall another one that had two one-punch knockouts in significant fights like that on a card. One-hitter quitters, as they're often referred to. Uh, and that is what happened in both cases. Uh, there is, um, yeah, Yeah,
1: I mean, th- we've seen, like you said, like one-punch knockouts, that's a whole different matter. But in terms
0: of uh, it, them, and them being on the same card, I mean, it's, it's pretty. Um, I'll pop quiz you when Gervonta Davis flattened Leo Santa Cruz in the Alamo Dome, right. one punch knockout during the pandemic. I don't know if there was another knockout on that card, but that just came to mind as big time knockout, knockout of the year type punch. And was there another one on that card? I don't well, know.
1: I don't remember the other knock. There may have been other knocks, but I don't think anything that rose that mm-hmm. level. The only one that I can come up with, but this predates my time of covering boxing. It was time when I was just, you know, big boxing fan and watching everything there was. Yeah. And maybe there's been one since. And we're not, I'm not saying this is all encompassing or authoritative, but this is definitely a card where we did see two knockout of the year caliber knockouts on the same card. It's just, you know, a long time ago, well over 20 years ago. In 1999, there was an HBO uh, card that took place in Atlantic City, and in the main event of that night was the first matchup between pre-heavyweight champion tenures of Oleg Moskyev and Hasim Rachman in their first meeting, and it was a very good fight, and it ended with Oleg Moskyev in the uh, eighth round knocking Hasim Rachman out of the ring. And there's that famous clip that was played all the time on HBO where he literally falls into Jim Lampley, into uh, the ringside table and onto the floor right by Jim Lampley. Like he's on the floor right next to me and they show him like on the floor right next to Jim Lampley. So that was a spectacular knockout. And in the opening fight on that on that undercard that was on television was the former heavyweight title challenger before he challenged for the title. At the time, an undefeated fighter named Derek Jefferson, who had a war with Maurice Harris, who knocked him out cold in the sixth round. And you had uh, uh, Larry Merchant exclaiming, "Derek Jefferson, I love you," and those were both on the same card, and they were and both. Le- not and let me be- just <laughs>
0: say, Rayfield is not going from notes here on the Fight Freaks Unite Recap podcast. He's going off the top of his head. That you remember all that stuff. You scare me with this sometimes because well, those i are not remembering that. Is, yeah, I'll tell you why I remember that so clearly. Because my my
1: my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend, we were in Orlando, Florida, at the wedding of a very close friend of ours and we got back to the hotel just in time uh, as it turned out for the boxing event, I had my this is going to date me the VCR set back home
0: to watch the fights. <laughs> it course. just so
1: happened that I got back to the hotel in time uh for uh for the beginning or right the, like it was shortly after the start of the telecast so I was just in the hotel room after the wedding was over watching those fights and for some reason I always remember that particular card and uh but those were absolutely sensational knockouts but again You have to go back from 1999, at least in my memory banks, all the way to 2022 to come up with a card where you had two spectacular knockout of the year uh, contenders on the same show. Now, the difference also, of course, is that that was a live HBO show, not not an $80 pay-per-view or a $75 pay-per-view.
0: All right, we need to move along quickly on the recap podcast. Give me like 30, 60 seconds. Anything else from that undercard? Because I want to move on to Haney and Kambos's go because you were there ringside.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it may take a little more than 30 seconds, but, you know, the... The, uh, the Frank Sanchez heavyweight fight where he scored the knockout against Carlos Negron, uh, not going to win any fight of the year, contender fights or anything like that. Uh, but I have to say from an entertainment value and partly uh, to Negron's credit, made it that way a bit because of the way he came to Sanchez, but also Sanchez for changing things a little bit now that he's uh, got a new trainer and Joe Goosen no longer with Eddie Reynoso. Um, as, and I'll put, let me put the, the, uh, the, the caveat on it. Or the As Frank Sanchez fights go, it was more entertaining than your typical Frank Sanchez fight. Um, Frank Sanchez is a good heavyweight. You know, he's going to be a problem for a lot of guys because he's very skilled. He can punch. He's got good movement. He's got good hand speed. He's got good skills. And he may not be the most exciting guy, but again, he's still has room to improve, but he's, he's going to be a tough out for a lot of guys and he may beat some of these guys. Um, So that was a a good performance from him against, you know, a good solid sort of durable journeyman type opponent, um, but who was an Olympian in the day and had some, some pedigree to him. Uh, so good fight, uh, generally speaking. And I actually thought, even though it was very one-sided, the, the opening fight on the pay-per-view, which was a rematch between the former Bantamweight title holder, Emmanuel Rodriguez, and Gary Antonio Russell, who was the middle brother between the former featherweight champion, Gary Russell uh, Jr., and the up-and-coming 140-pounder, Gary Antoine Russell. This is Gary Antonio, the Bantamweight. Um in their first fight, they clanked heads, and the fight was over in 16 seconds. Classic southpaw right-hander, uh, terrible with the feet and the heads. Everything gets tangled up, and they smash heads. Rodriguez got really – he didn't really uh, – he just couldn't continue. It was such a, such a debilitating headbutt. They both took the, the shot harshly, but Rodriguez was the worst for the wear, and the fight got stopped. There was a no, uh, no decision, and so this was the rematch. They both fought one time since. This was an IBF elimination fight to get the opportunity for Rodriguez either to fight for the title again or for Gary Antonio to get his first title shot uh and it was a dominating, a surprisingly dominating performance from Emmanuel Rodriguez i was very impressed with the way he fought that fight they were able to avoid those headbutts largely until the end he he uh, had another terrible headbutt uh that short circuit of that fight it was i mean tj i've been watching boxing a long time that was as bad a headbutt as i've seen it wasn't there was no cut it wasn't emmanuel it wasn't emmanuel rodriguez where he's badly bleeding and you know they have to stop the fight because he can't see out of the eye or whatever He was just so messed up from that from that headbutt. You know, they they assessed him in the corner. They let the bell ring to start the next round, the tenth round, and uh, and that was all she wrote. And so the fight goes down as a technical decision win for uh, Rodriguez, well deserved. I mean, he won basically every round. I mean, what you
0: mean? And I saw a little bit of the aftermath. He was basically concussed. Oh yeah, basically wobbled, fuzzy, whatever from the headbutt and couldn't recover. So they go to the cards. Now, the thing that I, that I noticed, actually, I looked at Box Trek, and it actually
1: says that this, the fight didn't go on because of a cut caused by the headbutt. There may have been a little uh, abrasion or a small cut, but that was not the reason why. The, the fight did not stop. That, that note on Box Trek is wrong and it should be changed. That fight was not stopped because of a cut. That fight was stopped because the guy was to- is very badly messed up from the headbutt uh, that he was, as you said, he was probably concussed. Uh. So hopefully he'll, he'll recover from that, take his time. And uh, he'll get a shot at the title. Now, he lost his title to Naoyi Inouye on in the second round knockout back in uh, 2019, I believe it was, during the uh, World Boxing Super Series tournament. But he's not going to get a rematch with Inouye, who still holds that title to this day because he's going to have the undisputed fight with Paul Butler come December. And then he said uh, in, at the press conference when they announced that fight that he is moving up, win or lose. So most likely what will happen is Rodriguez will get the opportunity to fight for the vacant title once Inouye moves up.
0: All right. Good enough on those. Let's move on. While the undercard was playing out and just before Deontay Wilder's thunderous KO Saturday night in the Barclays Center, halfway around the globe in Australia, Sunday afternoon, their time because of the dateline and the time difference. Uh Same song, second verse. We saw it again where Devin Haney once again put it on George Cambosis, Cambosis a little better. This is me saying this at the beginning of the fight. You saw him landing some right hands in the first round or two, but then Haney got control, used his skill, used his hand speed, used his movement. And this was a replay. And it was a very bloody George Cambosis as the fight went on. I was concerned watching that. They're going to stop this because of the blood. He had a cut over the left eye. He had a gash above his right ear, like on his hairline, on the side of his head that was bleeding all over the place. He survived. I'll use that word, I thought, in in the 10th, 11th, and 12th, bleeding everywhere. Easy win for Haney. That's me saying it. You watched along while you were ringside at Berkeley's and also working and watching those fights. What are your impressions off of it? Actually, in terms of the Haney fight, I saw a clips here and there. We had it on, I was
1: watching the fights in front of me. I had it on my phone. Uh, the reception at that time was very poor in the arena, so it was kind of buffering a bit. I, it's hard to, to to watch it and pay close attention. And so I kind of saw a little bit here and there. I knew the result. And then when I was home after I had my nice nap, and after the Giants had won, but before the Yankees <laughs> had played. And actually, this was good because my wife and my son were pretty much out all day with something that they had planned. So I was sort of left to my own devices at home. So I was able to, between the end of the football game and the beginning of the of uh, of the uh, of the Yankees game, and maybe another little power nap in the middle there, uh, I did watch the Haney fight. And, you know, it was, I thought, it was actually a more dominating. I, ex- I mean, we talked about it on the preview podcast. We talked about it on the Bet US show. I thought it was going to be another easy, uh, an easy win for Haney. I thought he would win in many ways even more easily than he did in the first fight. And he did win more easily than he did in the first fight. It was a dominating performance. The scores were even wider uh, than they were in the first fight. You know, we all thought that he won the fight in the first place very, very easily. Two judges actually had the first fight eight rounds to four. But in the second fight, uh, it was 118, 119, uh, 118 on two scorecards to 110 and 119 on the other scorecard. You know, look, he, he, I didn't want to call it a tuna fight in the pre-fight because that's not fair to Cambosis and it's undisputed and all that. But we all knew that this was the fight that he had to win to hopefully get to the Lomachenko fight, you know, pending a Lomachenko victory that takes place in a couple of weeks, uh, October 29th. Uh, and that's what he did. But the thing about it that I liked from Haney was he still used the boxing skills, but he was more offensive-minded than he had been. His right hand was excellent. He landed a lot of punches. There was a reason why George uh, Cambosis was bleeding the way he was. It wasn't because of headbutts or because of uh, – you know, fouls or things along those lines. He was getting hit in the face with, with nice shots. Uh, Devin Haney is a really excellent young fighter. And George Cambosis, uh, unfortunately for him, seems like, I mean, there's time for him to change. It's up to him to do it. But if this is the way the career is going to continue to go, he'll go down as one of the. Biggest one-hit wonders we've seen in a long time. It'll be on par with Buster Douglas at the lower weight class.
0: But he got in there uh, again, scrapped again. Uh, Were you surprised? Good effort effort from George. I know you were already aware that he did survive the 10th, 11th, and 12th, but watching all that blood everywhere, again, I'm watching live going, they may just stop this. It's a one-sided fight. He's not going to win a decision. He's shown no (laughs) real probability of landing a haymaker punch in the first fight or in this fight. I was concerned they're going to stop it with the blood flow, but they let it go. In re-watching it, am I overreacting to the blood that I saw? There was a ton of it. No, the the blood is not a factor unless the the wound is the factor.
1: The blood is superficial. The blood just looks bad. So if the blood is coming from a cut, like you mentioned, on the side of the head or the hairline or the scalp or something that's not a vital organ, you know, obviously because of the way – The human head is constructed. It's eat more. It's more bloody because there's less flesh to deal with. So that's why those hairline cuts can look so terrible. And that's why there's professional ringside physicians because they don't get freaked out by the blood. They're there to assess the injury and obviously make sure the guy's not losing enough blood where he's going to bleed out, you know, in that sense. But when you have that kind of gash on your head, you're not going to bleed out. It just looks terrible. But the wound itself is not really a problem. Uh, in terms of a professional boxing match. So I did not think that. And the other cut that he had uh, over the eye was not enough in my mind uh, to stop the fight. I mean, I'm not there looking at it up close like the doctor was, but I had no problem with that fight going on. George certainly seemed to still have fight in him. It wasn't like he was trying to quit, I didn't think. Um, so he wanted us to, to, uh, to continue to fight and they let him do it. And, and that's what they should have done. I mean, uh, this is not a four-round preliminary fight. This is the undisputed lightweight championship of the world. Uh, and uh, he had every every reason uh, to be allowed to continue in the fight he did, and you know, blood
0: be damned. Haney landed, according to CompuBox box numbers, 202 punches to just 76 for Cambosis, To give you wow. an idea of the dominance overall, I mean, it doesn't say everything, but it tells you when you're landing that many more. My Lord, that's drastic. Easy decision win for him, full credit to him, and he's going to get a big payday, it looks like, against Lomachenko coming at some point, he, he got a big payday for the Cambosis fight. It's true. four million maybe a bigger one. Good for him that he went over to Australia and got the win yet again. Okay. So we'll let's wrap... just make
1: one more step before yep, we move on. Let's just say this. Boxing needs many more fighters like Devin Haney. And when I say that, I mean, from the mental standpoint where it's like, I will go, I will fight this guy wherever. I'm not scared. I'll go on the road. I'll do what I have to do to get my, to get my
0: opportunity. And we should point out he contractually agreed and understood that if I win the first fight, which he did in June, I'm obligated to fight him again in Australia. And he said, I'm good. I have no problem with that. I will not balk at that. I'll take it and I'll beat him again. And he beat him again. hundred percent. I don't know why he wouldn't have because he saw how
1: easily he beat him the first time and why he wouldn't think that those skills would stand up in the second fight. Uh, it wasn't like George was somehow, um, you know, uh, not at his best or, you know, was physically impaired or something along those lines in that first fight, that it was probably going to be the same story. So I give Devin Haney a lot of credit. He's an excellent young fighter at age 23 years old, to be 23, to have defended now the undisputed title uh, successfully and looking to do it hopefully at least one more time against Lomachenko. You know, the thing about it is in the four-belt era, when guys have unified, it's, it's, it's been uncommon, at least in terms of on the men's side. Most of the fighters, they don't defend it at all. And those who do might only make one defense. To the best of my recollection, uh, when Alexander Usyk uh, was the undisputed cruiserweight champion, he made one more defense after unifying all the belts. He fought Tony Bellew in London on his turf and scored a sensational knockout. Uh, And other fighters who became undisputed uh, didn't do it. Josh Taylor did it when he fought the first fight with Jack Catterall. Obviously very controversial, but he did defend the four belts. But when Bernard Hopkins became undisputed in the four belt era, he did not defend all the belts because he was stripped by, one, by the IBF for failing to make a mandatory. So he was obviously no longer the fully unified champion. And the same thing, uh, not necessarily stripping, but like for, take, for example, when Terrence Crawford became the undisputed champion at junior welterweight, he immediately decided that he was going to go up to welterweight and pursue the title there, which he did. He vacated the belts and went up and won the WBO title against Jeff Horn in his first fight as a welterweight. So it's very uncommon. And what Devin Haney is poised to do, Uh, I believe will be the first time in that four belt era where a guy might be actually able to make two defenses of the undisputed crown. Now, whether he would be successful or not against Lomachenko is a different story, but, and you know, you don't know how it's going to play out with the organizations. If there is going to be some kind of politics that may prevent them from holding all of those belts at once, I think he'll be okay. uh, Given what, what that division is set up at the moment. But the point
0: is uh, that's something I find that to be significant if he can do it. And to your point, Jermel Charlo, we bring up the other Charlo, has yet to defend the four belts that he has as undisputed 154-pound champion. Canelo did defend the four belts in the Golovkin fight. But you're talking about go defend it a second time or a third time. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, of course, yes. So
1: Canelo Canelo won. I just wasn't thinking about that. But, yes, he did do that. Uh, And, then you know, listen, we don't know what Canelo's next move is going to be. So there's a good chance that he may be able to do that again in his next fight. Uh, That remains to be seen because he's going to be out for a bit because of the uh, wrist injury. And um, Charlotte's uh, situation is just not clear yet. I mean, I, he maybe he'll go, you know, I, I think it's going to be something like this. If we see the other Charlotte go up to 168, maybe that will move his brother to go up to 160. Obviously, they both held titles together at 154, but they're not going to fight each other. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if the brother clears out at 160, that might open an opportunity up for him. And, the other one will be fighting at 168. But, you know, and Haney's also doing it, though. The, the thing besides just the, the, the defending of it is
0: he's only 23. Yep. Big future. Big future in front Big of future. us. future. All right. You and I are getting punchy. I'm getting punchy. We're getting late in the evening on Sunday, but we are going to give it I'm ready it to go due. 15 rounds, baby. I'm with you. Let's give it its due. The women's doubleheader. The main event was much better. The It's not that the co-feature fight, Michaela Mayer and Alicia Baumgartner wasn't uh, exciting or dramatic, but it wasn't the all out fireworks and punches. And we saw much more of that from Claressa Shields and Savannah Marshall in the main event. So, Baumgartner, this is a rare time I get to say this on the show, made me look good for picking the upset on the money line on the US show. So, I got that one right. Uh, and then we both had Shields as the winner over Marshall in advance. That did happen, although it was tough. And Savannah Marshall was tough. Savannah Marshall well- took some big time shots. In that fight and delivered some shots and Claressa Shields took some shots. All right. The women's title doubleheader London Saturday afternoon. Your thoughts in the recap mode, please.
1: Well, in terms of the, we'll start with the, the undercard fight first, in terms of Michaela against a uh, bomb And these were fights that I was able to watch closely at ringside on my laptop during uh, and before the preliminaries were happening. Cause there were some breaks and all that. So I was sitting there with myself. Uh, I was sitting there with uh, my esteemed ringside colleague, Tom Hauser, watching the fights. Um, I thought that the main, that, that, that fight between Michaela and Alicia Baumgartner was a very, very close fight. I know that, that Michaela was very upset with the loss. Uh, I, I certainly could feel her pain uh, was not a robbery. It was a super close fight. And even though one scorecard was 97 to 93, it doesn't mean that the rounds were not extremely close. That one thing that people can't quite get their minds around sometimes is theoretically you could potentially see a shutout scorecard where every single round is close and the judges has given it all to the other fighter. Now that doesn't happen often, but that's sometimes why you see a super close fight where there might be one, one card that might be slightly askew. So she's got nothing to be ashamed of. They both fought very good fights. It was like you mentioned, it was a little more tactical uh, and not as much action, just pure going at each other the way that the main event was, but they both fought very well. Michaela, I think when she goes back with her trainer, Al Mitchell, and they look at the video is going to rue what she sees in the first two rounds of that fight where she basically gave them to Baumgartner. She just didn't really do anything. She needed to start faster. She didn't do it. If she wins even one of those rounds, uh, it, it's going to be a draw. Uh, and if she steps on the gas, maybe she even gets the win. Uh, but again, those two women, they fought very, very well. And uh, you know, props to, to Baumgartner. She didn't get the knockout like she
0: kept saying she was going to do, but she won the fight. She's the unified three-belt champion now. So I did not see it. Maybe you've seen it. And again, we'll look into it maybe a little bit more, but I thought Baumgartner won the 10th round, which ended up being vital only a 10 round fight because she won the fight by one point on both cards that she wanted on. And I believe she got it on at least two of those judges cards, if not all three. So may or may regret that too, that she didn't get the 10th round. Uh, and and even Coach Alice, she calls him, was imploring her. I heard it in the corner. We got to have this. They knew both corners knew. Go get mm-hmm. the tenth round, and Baumgartner did. Uh, any thought on that before we go to the main event?
1: No, you're listening. You're right. She closed. She, she, Michaela, did not start. Not that Alicia started so quick, but but Michaela just gave them to her. Even though it wasn't like Alicia was really going after those first couple of rounds. But you're absolutely right about what happened in in the last round. Was that uh, one knew she needed it and went out and got it, and the other one. I think knew she needed it and didn't go out there and get it. So if there is a difference in that fight, it very well could have been that 10th round. Uh, You know, again, Michaela Mayer, just because she suffered a loss in a a high profile fight, it's not like her career is over. She's a very good fighter. She's, I have no doubt she'll be back in the mix for some other uh, title fights, whether it's a a rematch with Baumgartner or something else at 130. She spoke in the pre-fight about dropping down to 126 uh, and and maybe trying to fight Serrano. Uh, She could go to 135. And, and, you know, there who's at 135? You got Katie Taylor, who's back in the ring to defend the Undisputed right. title coming up in a couple of weeks. Now, that's a hard fight to make with the Natrium top-ranked, the Zone ESPN. But it's, you know, Michaela's the clear B-side in a fight like that. She just fought in the UK. She, she brought in to help bring in a big crowd at the O2 for this event. I think that would be a very popular fight. Everybody could put on a big event, make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, she would just have to take the B-side on that fight. She was the A-side in this fight. Um, anyway, good fight. A uh, good win for Baumgartner, and uh, I was glad they were able to get the fight going. And then you want to talk about the main event? Yes. Look, I've seen every single one of Clarissa Shields professional fights. That was the, the most action-packed fight she's ever been in. She's more of a, a boxer, typically. She's not uh, a, a fighter that has you know huge punching power, but she, it, she stuck her chin in there. She took a lot of tough shots. She delivered some hard shots. She moved well. She boxed well. Uh, and, and I actually, I'm going to give uh, Savannah Marshall a lot of credit. She was a lot better than I gave her credit for, because I thought she was extraordinarily one-dimensional fighter. I thought that it would be a pretty one-sided decision for Clarissa that she was box her ears off, and, and win going away. But she showed a lot of toughness. She, she stalked her. She landed good punches. She moved pretty well. Uh, they were there to fight. I respect both of them. They, they, they threw down. It might not have been at the same dramatic level, intensity level of what we saw between Taylor and Serrano, which has been uh, become the benchmark in, in you know the last several months for what a superstar women's fight can look like. But this was not that far off, in my mind. It's been and a great it, year for women's dramatic
0: boxing. Yes, and it was dramatic, and the crowd was into it at the O2 Arena. I don't know if it was completely sold out, but like you were saying, building into it, it was probably 18, 19,000 at least, if it was not. And they were roaring, and, and Marshall hit Shields three or four times late in the fight where you're like, wow, and Clarissa took him. And she said after the fight, I want your feeling on this. Every time she hit me with a big shot, I made sure I hit her back with a big shot. And I think that helped push her across the finish line on the decision. She got a convincing decision was that she didn't let Marshall, uh, let's say, snatch the eighth, ninth, tenth round with the big shots because she was firing back at her. Your thoughts? No, and they're, they're,
1: 100%. I mean, she she answered fire with fire is what she did. And the thing about it was, if you know, the, the score's, uh, in the fight where, uh, you know, they were, it was a competitive fight on the scorecards because, you know, it was 97, 93 and two cards, but the other one was only a one round difference of 96 to 94. And to me, what I saw, and the reason why Shields probably was given the edge was because it was very clear that when Marshall was landing, she was landing heavier punches. Claressa though was a bit more active. I felt like she was throwing more punches. She, she was, uh, was doing everything she could to not be on the ropes and to keep the fight in the middle of the ring, even though Savannah forced her there. And she just seemed to control the pace and dictate where the fight was taking place a bit more than than uh, Marshall uh, uh, did. But it was a worthy fight. Look, this fight was brewing for many years. We talked about the fact that uh, the big storyline was that Savannah had the victory over her in the amateurs. It was the only loss as a boxer that uh, Clarissa had ever taken, amateur or pro. And it sort of was a thorn in her side for all these years. And uh, they were big rivals. But I, I respect both because they showed some class after the fight. Uh, you know, they stood there with, you know, essentially their arms around each other and gave each other credit. You know, and at the top level of boxing, if you want to be in these types of big events and make the biggest money and make the the, the biggest uh, imprint and, and, and impression on the fans and, and build your legacy, you need a dance partner. You need somebody to bring out the best in you. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier brought out the best in each other. And we can go on down the line of fighters, who are historical in nature? Who bring out the best in each other? You know, Alexis Arguello and Aaron Pryor—they brought out the best in each other. We can cite chapter and verse: Riddick Bowen, and Evander Holyfield. I mean, whatever. Mm-hmm. We, I could sit here for an hour and tell you those types of uh, yep. names. Savannah Marshall and and Clarissa Shields—they brought out the best in each other. It was a terrific fight. And I have to be honest, I you know, uh, it's not going to happen right away. There's no need to happen right away. But you know, if they and you know if they keep continuing having success in their careers, doing whatever they're doing, uh, I could absolutely see there being a point at some point where they would do a rematch in that fight. It was that good of a fight. The fans uh, certainly gravitated towards it. Claressa is proving herself, at least in women's boxing, to be a historical figure. She claims she's the, quote, the greatest woman of all time. You know, I'm not necessarily there quite yet, but she's making a case for it. She's now the two-time undisputed champ at middleweight, keeping in mind that she was the one-time undisputed champion. and She became a two-time because she gave up the belt that Savannah won, And she just took it back from her in the fight on Saturday. She's been the undisputed champ at 154 pounds. She had unified belts at 168 pounds. She's got two Olympic gold medals. She avenged her only loss ever as a boxer in terms of uh, the amateurs and beating her uh, Savannah and the pros. There's nothing that's that Clarissa hasn't. The only thing she hasn't done that she lacks, and it's not that big of a deal because she gets the W's she's only got a couple of knockouts. She doesn't knock the other uh, opponent out, but you know what? Uh, You know, there's plenty of great fighters that were not big knockout punchers that were all-time greats. Floyd Mayweather and, is one of the greatest fighters of all time. He didn't score a lot of knockouts. I mean, and by the way, were, like
0: it was not from a lack of big punches. There were big punches thrown and taken at the end of that fight for Shields and for oh, Marshall. they both showed good
1: shins in that fight and, too,
0: like you said. There was class at the end too from Shields going over and saying, uh, you know, that was a tough fight, and class in the ring uh, on the ring side on the on the uh, in-ring interview after it was over. So good on the sportsmanship there with that and that's a good way to wrap it up anything else here off the weekend I think we're good and yeah I was just mark on another week anything else
1: I'm just gonna say it was a, it was a it was a it was a good weekend for boxing I mean I'm glad I made the trip to New York uh maybe it wasn't the greatest card of all time but there was definitely some interesting things on it
0: great women's card you saw two memorable knockouts first whatever yeah. whatever else you want to say that were they're gonna be knockouts that'll yeah, and you, you, you and everybody d- saw everybody else yeah
1: and you saw the young Devin Heaney who is you know one of the great young fighters in this sport. I mean, he's now, uh, you know, he's now you have to consider him the road warrior. He's been two times on the road to Australia. He didn't just go from fighting, you know, in where he lives in Las Vegas. And he went to fight the guy in like his hometown in New York. I mean, he went, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of miles away to fight in the other guys, uh, uh, you know, go into the lion's den and fight in Australia. Um, So between the women in London and and the big knockouts in New York and the brilliant performance from Devin Haney in Australia in a a big time uh, undisputed fight, it was a hell of a weekend uh, for the sport in my mind. And now we get a little bit of a break because if we come into next week, there's not a whole lot on the, on the menu to, uh, to get too pumped up about. But that said, anytime
0: I get a nice fight like
1: Mauricio Lara back in the ring uh, in Mexico, uh, an exciting fighter in a, in a main event on the zone, I'm happy to see it.
0: Lots of action from this weekend, that's for sure. We put a bow here on the recap podcast. I'm glad you got back safely. I got back safely and we gave the peeps. Uh, some of our thoughts here on the fight. We encourage you to read more on Dan's Substack, Fight Freaks Unite, and also on BigFightWeekend.com. Recap uh, posts about the fights, et cetera. You've heard a lot from us on this. And I promise you this, we'll come back with a preview podcast coming on the weekend for whatever's out there. We'll see what else we come up with, but that's later in the week. We'll worry about that later in the week. We're good for now, right? We'll be
1: good. We'll be better on late Monday night after the New York Yankees have advanced for the ALCS.
0: From your lips to the Bronx Bombers being able to move on because baseball's lost the other big names, like the Cardinals, the Dodgers, the Mets, that all had big regular seasons, they're all gone. Let's see if the Yankees survive or not in the baseball playoffs. For now, we are good. Dan Rayfield, thank you. Behave. (laughs) Yes, sir. And we thank you for listening here to the Fight Freaks Unite Recap Podcast. Make sure you're following or subscribing. Search for us on the Big Fight Weekend Podcast feed and uh, you will get us coming off the weekend with Fight Freaks Unite. Bye.